there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 1191 AD. A group of medieval monks were gathered outside Glastonbury Abbey in Somerset, England. They were determined to unearth the remains of the legendary King Arthur. They wanted to prove that King Arthur existed, that he was indeed the man of Celtic legend. It seemed like a hopeless task, until... They found something. A gigantic oak coffin. They discovered two bodies inside. The first was a man with a severely wounded head. The wound seemed to match the description of the fatal blow that Arthur had received from Mordred at the Battle of Camlan. The second body was a woman buried with a plate of gold hair. Over their corpses, there was a lead cross bearing the inscription, Here lies buried the famous King Arthur with Guinevere, his second wife, in the Isle of Avalon. The monks may have solved a mystery that had persisted through the ages. In that tomb there may have finally been definitive evidence to prove that King Arthur was real. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. This is our final episode on the mystery of King Arthur. We'll be digging deeper into the Arthurian legend in order to answer two vital questions. Did King Arthur actually exist? And if so, how does the real King Arthur compare with the Arthur of legend? If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. While you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. As we discussed in the prior episode, King Arthur is a figure who has long eluded historians. He was presumed to have lived during the Dark Ages, a time from which little recorded history survives. As a result, nothing was written about Arthur until centuries after his apparent death. According to multiple 9th century texts, Arthur was first depicted as a ruthless war general. Over time, he would evolve into the legendary king we know him as today. Yet so many mysteries revolve around the legend that historians debate whether King Arthur ever actually existed. In this episode, we'll be sifting through archaeological evidence to see if we can find a real-life Arthur. We will also dive back into the various historical accounts of Arthur in order to determine how the legend was born. When the Glastonbury monks uncovered Arthur's tomb late in the 12th century, they had discovered some of the first hard evidence to support King Arthur's existence. But was it evidence we could trust? In 1962, 
Archaeologist Raleigh Radford led an excavation to determine the legitimacy of Arthur's grave. His findings were consistent with the notion that 12th century monks did indeed unearth an ancient grave at Glastonbury Abbey. However, later studies by archaeologist and medieval specialist Roberta Gilcrest disputed that Radford may have exaggerated his evidence. Critics that side with Gilcrest point to the fact that the bones and lead cross have gone missing. Hence, we can only rely on the monk's account of the tomb. We no longer have the physical evidence. Furthermore, historians question whether the Glastonbury monks harbored a suspicious financial motive to find Arthur's tomb. In the 1180s, roughly a decade before the discovery of Arthur's grave, Glastonbury Abbey was nearly destroyed in a disastrous fire. While the monks were repairing the monastery, the nearby Westminster Abbey was gaining popularity. Critics speculate that the monks invented Arthur's grave as a way to draw people back to Glastonbury. It's possible they had merely created a medieval tourist attraction intended to pay for all the damages caused by the fire. Even more concerning, the monks had already come under suspicion in 1184 for claiming to have discovered the remains of St. Patrick. This ran contrary to the common belief that St. Patrick had been buried in Ireland. Were the monks employing a similar gambit with Arthur? Searching for answers, historians scrutinized the inscription that had been recorded on the grave's lead cross. Again, their findings were contradictory. One group of historians claimed that the inscription bears the markings of 12th century Latin. This would support the theory that the monks had simply falsified the tomb. Yet an opposing group, led by British historian Geoffrey Ashe, pointed to the archaic representation of the name Arthur as Arturius. Ashe argues that this is a distinctly 5th or 6th century spelling of the name. No such spelling of the name continued after the 7th century. It's unclear whether the monks were aware of the discrepancy in spelling and could have therefore made a more believable forgery. A 1981 archaeological study uncovered two more graves at Glastonbury. Using carbon dating, the archaeologists determined the graves dated back to the 6th century, the time in which Arthur lived. But wasn't Arthur supposed to have been buried at Avalon? Even the inscription itself places his burial at the legendary Isle of Avalon. As you may recall, Avalon was purported to be a heaven on earth, a mystical island where great heroes were laid to rest. Its precise location has never been found. However, Glastonbury provided one of the most likely possibilities for a real-life Avalon. Back in the 6th century, Glastonbury Abbey was believed to have been surrounded by water on all sides. Glastonbury Tor, the hill on which the abbey was built, was actually an island. The name Glastonbury itself is rumored to have derived from Old Welsh, meaning the Isle of Glass. Furthermore, numerous Celtic legends identified Glastonbury Tor as the entryway to the other world. Given that Glastonbury Tor may have been an island during the time of Arthur, and that it was already steeped in Celtic folklore relating to the afterlife, it's possible Glastonbury may have been the real-life Avalon. However, that still doesn't prove whether Arthur's grave was authentic. Were the monks guilty of purporting a medieval fraud when aimed at repairing their own financial difficulty? Or had they actually uncovered Britain's beloved King Arthur? Other archaeological evidence may help to answer these questions. 
1998, archaeologist Kevin Brady made a breakthrough finding at Tintagel Castle in Cornwall. He discovered an artifact which has since been named the Arthur's Stone. The stone itself was found amongst the ruins of Tintagel Castle, but it was believed to have once been built into the original structure. On the stone, an inscription is carved, quote, Artignew, father of a descendant of Cole, end quote. Artignew was synonymous with the old Breton name for Arthur. Professor Charles Thomas examined the style of writing and confirmed that the inscription on the Arthur stone was dated to the 6th century. Further excavations uncovered fragments of pottery in the area, which also dated back to the 6th century. Thus, the stone and the inscription both seem credible to Arthur's lifetime. In light of the Arthur stone, historians suggest that Tintagel Castle may have been the real-life location of Camelot, the place most commonly associated with the height of Arthur's rule. However, historians often name one possible alternative in their search for the location of a real-life Camelot. In 1542, King Henry VIII sent his antiquary John Leland on an expedition to Cadbury. In his travels, Leland would write, quote, At the very south end of the church of South Cadbury stood Camelot, sometime a famous town or castle. He would add that the townsfolk were all very much aware how Camelot had featured so prominently in Arthur's legend. Ever since Leland's account, speculation has run rampant that Cadbury Castle, not Tintagel Castle, was indeed Camelot. Another tempting piece of evidence is Cadbury Castle's close proximity to Glastonbury Tor, both in the region of Somerset. A causeway known as King Arthur's Hunting Track even connects the two historic sites. Cadbury Castle holds the foundations of a great timbered hall, which many have envisioned as the home of the Round Table. In addition, Archaeological evidence shows that the castle underwent substantial refortifications late in the 5th century. The refortifications may have coincided with Arthur's takeover of Camelot. The military defenses discovered by the archaeologists at Cadbury Castle were estimated to have been double the size of any other known fort in the period. In this vein, rumors still persist that the castle was once large enough to house King Arthur's entire army. Perhaps due to its strong military architecture, Cadbury serves as one possible real-life location for Arthur's final confrontation with Mordred at the Battle of Camlan. The treacherous Mordred allegedly overtook Camelot just before he met Arthur's army. If Cadbury Castle was indeed Camelot, it's logical that their battle would have taken place in the nearby Cadbury region. Adding to this notion, the River Cam flows through the Cadbury region, which is where the Battle of Camlan may have derived its name. According to the legend, Arthur was mortally wounded in this fateful battle. Afterwards, Arthur was ferried to Avalon, where he had planned to be buried. Note that Arthur was presumably still alive during his trip to Avalon. He was traveling so that he could die in a setting that would be worthy of his epic tale, a land which some believed held the secrets to immortality. Since Arthur was already mortally wounded at the time of his trip, it stands to reason that he could not have traveled far. Only about 12 miles away, Glastonbury Tor fits almost perfectly into the narrative. 
This was the same Glastonbury tour where King Arthur's tomb was later discovered, according to the 12th century monks. It was also the same Glastonbury tour which may have once been the real-life island associated with mythic legends of the afterlife. If Cadbury Castle was Camelot and the Battle of Camlan took place beside the Cam River, then Glastonbury Tor may very well have been Avalon. All the pieces fit together. It's possible that the monks were telling the truth. If the monks' findings were genuine, the consequences would be profound. King Arthur, a man of unmatched legend, a ruler of enormous historical bearing, may have actually walked the earth almost a god among men. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to Unexplained Mysteries. Finding possible real-life locations for Camelot and Avalon helps demystify the Arthurian legend. But is it enough to prove Arthur existed? The proximity between Cadbury and Glastonbury Tor makes it more likely that Arthur's body really was buried at Glastonbury Abbey. Yet the monks may have already been aware of Glastonbury's mythic connotations. By the 12th century, it was widely rumored that Avalon and Glastonbury Tor were one and the same. Perhaps the monks were taking advantage of this knowledge. Instead of uncovering history, they might have just been adding to the myth. Given the monks' unscrupulous backgrounds, the fires several years prior, and the clear presence of financial motive, it's hard to trust them beyond doubt. Especially if you take into consideration the disappearance of the bones in the cross. The major pieces of proof found at Arthur's grave have conveniently gone missing. It's possible that the monks did find King Arthur's tomb, but there's not enough evidence to take the monks at their word. As we touched on in the last episode, there were few mentions of Arthur in the centuries immediately following his life. This can be attributed to an overall lack of written history that survived the Dark Ages. In its place, there was a strong cultural emphasis on oral history, which didn't depend on widespread education. As a result, the first written references of Arthur did not appear until the 9th century, roughly 300 years after his death. By the time of these early poems, the Igadadan and the History of the Britons, Arthur was already a well-known figure. However, both works depicted Arthur as a fearsome war general with little to recount about his personality. In the later works, starting in the 12th century, Arthur's persona would grow into the legend we are familiar with today. In other words, the modern-day conception of Arthur as we know him is largely dependent on these subsequent writings. Beginning with the History of the Kings of Britain in 1138 AD, Geoffrey of Monmouth was the first to define Arthur as an actual king. Geoffrey's work is arguably the most crucial of all the texts in the Arthurian canon. Geoffrey was the first writer to provide details of Arthur's lineage, descriptions of his personality. He essentially laid the groundwork for the modern-day King Arthur. Geoffrey titled his work, The History of the Kings of Britain, but historians doubt whether it can truly be regarded as a history. It seems Geoffrey at least intended for his work to be read as nonfiction. He opens with a dedication, a full chapter devoted to the authenticity of his writing. He begins the section by calling upon Gildas and Bede, famed British historians who had lived before him. Geoffrey viewed his work as a continuation of the works of Gildas and Bede, 
or perhaps improving upon their writings. Jeffrey wrote, quote, In their elegant treaties, I found nothing said of those kings who lived here before the incarnation of Christ, nor of Arthur and the many others who succeeded after. End quote. Jeffrey was presenting himself as a humble historian whose sole purpose was to give credit to those who, in his words, deserved immortal fame. Yet Jeffrey's contemporaries held an entirely different view of his work. 12th century historian William of Newborough responded, quote, Jeffrey weaves a laughable web of fiction, end quote. In another scathing criticism, William of Newborough wrote, quote, Since the historians of old have made not even the slightest mentions of these persons, clearly all that Jeffrey has published in his book about Arthur and Merlin has been invented by liars to feed the curiosity of those less wise, end quote. Clearly, William of Newborough accused Geoffrey of lying, and he was not the only one. Another critic, Gerald of Wales, tells a story of a famous Welshman who lived in his town. The Welshman was a well-known human lie detector who apparently would see the devil in the presence of any lie. Gerald of Wales speculated that if Geoffrey's book were placed in the Welshman's lap, quote, demons would appear all over his body and on the book, too, end quote. He added that the demons would have stayed there even longer than usual and have been even more demanding. If there was any value in such criticism, it was to show that there were numerous doubters of Jeffrey's work. Yet before we draw our own conclusion, let's take a closer look at William of Nubra's original criticism. He called Jeffrey a liar on the basis that the, quote, historians of old had not made even the slightest mentions about Arthur. Jeffrey used two pieces of evidence to defend himself. First, Jeffrey claimed his characters were long celebrated by many peoples as if they had already been written. Jeffrey was alluding to the strong presence of an oral tradition. Earlier accounts show that Arthur may have well been in the public sphere, even though a full account of his life had not yet been written. William of Newborough may have been referring to this oral tradition when he criticized, quote, Jeffrey has taken up the fables about Arthur from old, end quote. Unlike Jeffrey, William does not seem to lend any credence to such fables as he called them. Second, Jeffrey claimed that his writings were based on a very ancient book. Jeffrey acknowledged that Arthur's story didn't feature in the more common histories of Gildas and Bede. Instead, Jeffrey may have relied on lesser-known source material. Despite William of Nubra's brazen critique, Arthur did appear in at least three historical works prior to the time of Geoffrey's writing in 1138. There was, in order, the Gododdin, the History of the Britons, and the Annals of Wales. Geoffrey's ancient book could have been referencing any of these possible sources. One way or another, it's unlikely that Geoffrey created the entirety of the Arthur legend on his own especially given that there were several later additions to the tale that were independent of his contributions. Writing in 1210 A.D., roughly 70 years after Geoffrey of Monmouth's supposed history, Arthur Robert de Boron added the sword and the stone to the Arthurian legend. This was the tale wherein Arthur proved his right to the throne by pulling a previously unmovable sword out of an anvil. However, does this story have any historical basis? It does, in fact. 
But perhaps the more relevant question is, does it have any historical connection to King Arthur? Around the same time of Deborah's writing, there were reports of a wealthy knight who began having mysterious visions. His name was Galgano Guidati. According to the rumors, the archangel Michael visited Guidati in one of these visions. The archangel instructed Guidati to renounce all his worldly possessions and embrace God. Guidati was so moved by the vision, he thrust his sword into the ground to make a cross. The sword struck so cleanly into the earth, it could not be budged. Years later, the Montesieppi Chapel was built around the sword, where the real sword in the stone can still be seen today. Recent carbon dating confirms the sword does indeed date back to the 12th century, around the time de Boron was writing. It's possible that de Boron heard a version of Guidati's legend and transformed it into an Arthurian tale. Hence, the Sword in the Stone episode provides little help in the search for a historic King Arthur, but does prove that this character was already in the zeitgeist. After de Boron, Chrétien de Troyes famously wrote Lancelot into the Arthurian legend early in the 13th century. Last episode, we speculated about Lancelot's Welsh roots and his possible ties to an earlier hero, Tristan, who may have crossed paths with Arthur in the 6th century. However, Lancelot's character comes with a great deal of romantic baggage, specifically his affair with Guinevere. Historians assert that de Troyes' work may have been commissioned by a French countess, Marie de Champagne. Marie was well known for her intrigue in courtly affairs and, above all, romance literature. It's possible that de Troyes wrote Lancelot into the tale in order to please his patron. Lancelot may still have ties to Tristan and thereby Arthur, but the connection was certainly complicated by de Troyes' unclear motives. After de Troyes, Arthur's legend grew to include many of the fantastical, hard-to-believe elements, such as the Lady of the Lake, the invincible Excalibur, and the mystical sinking land of Lyoness. By the time of Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur in 1485, Arthur had been embellished to a level that can be likened to Greek tragedy. What parts of Arthur's legend were actually based on true events? The additions by de Boron, de Troyes, and Mallory all lack convincing evidence, as do the subsequent versions of the tale. The sword in the stone and Lancelot tales are like ornaments on a Christmas tree. While these later embellishments may not support a real-life Arthur, they do not disprove the entire legend. We need to return to the heart of the matter. All these later writers likely relied on one common element— Geoffrey of Monmouth's 1138 history was at the core of all their respective works. As we've discussed, Geoffrey had his fair share of critics. Yet even if we were to believe Geoffrey's defense that his work was actually based on an ancient book, one key problem still remains. The divide between the earlier accounts of Arthur and Geoffrey's Arthur. Nowhere in the earlier writings was Arthur defined as a king, especially one of such a noble disposition. Where was Geoffrey getting his information? William of Newborough quipped, quote, The man is called Geoffrey, and his other name is Arthur, end quote. He was accusing Geoffrey of writing himself fan fiction, and yet a kernel of truth may be hiding within William's sarcasm. 
Historians suspect Geoffrey invoked Arthur in his pen name, Galfridus Artyrus. This may reveal a personal connection to the Arthur of legend, a connection which may have clouded Geoffrey's judgment between fact and fiction. If Geoffrey of Monmouth fabricated his story, it would swing the narrative surrounding Arthur's existence. King Arthur has given life to hundreds of years of literature and oral tradition, as well as countless historical landmarks. His legend is amongst the most well-known tales in Western civilization. And it might all be a complete lie. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to the story. Did King Arthur ever exist? The answer likely depends on which version of Arthur you're referring to. The earlier version of Arthur still seems plausible. According to multiple 9th century texts, he was described as a great warrior. In a time when those skills were very important, it makes sense he would be immortalized through oral folklore. But then there's the Arthur of legend, who first came to light in the 12th century and has continued ever since. Given what we know about Geoffrey of Monmouth and the subsequent additions to the canon, it is hard to believe in the Arthur who was described in later writings. But Geoffrey would have had to have been one of the greatest literary talents of all time to have simply come up with a legend on his own. There is the possibility that Geoffrey based his King Arthur on the exploits of another historical figure. Ambrosius Aurelianus, brother of Uther Pendragon, had significant parallels to Arthur's life. Geoffrey mentioned Ambrosius during one of Merlin's prophecies. Already, we see a similarity as Arthur, too, was often the subject of the great wizard's prophecies. In this particular foretelling, Merlin envisioned that, quote, the Saxons shall look red with blood, and Aurelianus Ambrosius shall be crowned king. He shall bring peace to the nation, and he shall restore the churches, end quote. Ambrosius was to defeat the Saxons, be named king, and bring peace to Britain. These all sound like the deeds of Arthur. Note that Arthur has also traditionally been viewed as a renowned Christian figure. In restoring the churches, Geoffrey may have been attempting to align Ambrosius in the same tradition. Ambrosius Aurelianus is found outside of Geoffrey's writing too. In Gildas' 6th century text On the Ruin of Britain, Gildas credits Ambrosius with leading the victory at Baden Hill. As we mentioned last episode, Baden Hill was crucial to identifying a historical Arthur. It was the first primary battle Arthur was connected with. However, Gildas made no explicit reference to Arthur in his entire text. Instead, Ambrosius was depicted as the victorious military commander leading the fight over the Saxons. Remember also that Gildas was writing in the 6th century. This was one of the few contemporary accounts we have from Arthur's lifetime. Geoffrey of Monmouth referenced Gildas in his dedication. It's likely that he was aware of Gildas' historical description of Ambrosius, as well as the absence of Arthur. Ambrosius appeared later in a 9th century text by Nennius. This was the same text in which Arthur was famously associated with a list of 12 battles. Yet by Nennius's account, Arthur fought with kings, but was not a king himself. According to Nennius, Ambrosius was actually the king among all kings, a title frequently associated with Arthur. 
And Ambrosius apparently accomplished this feat at a young age, just like the 15-year-old Arthur of legend. Taking all this evidence into account, it's very possible Geoffrey based King Arthur on the historical Ambrosius. Another compelling candidate for the real-life Arthur was a Roman by the name of Magnus Maximus. Maximus lived during the 4th century and achieved celebrated victories over the Picts and the Scots. Geoffrey of Monmouth placed Arthur in a similar context upon becoming king. He wrote that in Arthur's first battle, he met a great army composed of Saxons, Scots, and Picts. In fact, Geoffrey may have actually been relaying events from Maximus's history. Maximus also appeared in Gildas's 6th century historical text, while again, Arthur was conspicuously absent. Maximus was known as a great Roman soldier who eventually rose to become the emperor. In Aeneas's 9th century text, he described Maximus as the final Roman emperor to rule in Britain. Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote about Maximus as well, claiming that he was the nephew of King Cole. Recall the inscription found on the Arthur stone at Tintagel Castle, which claimed that Arthur was also a descendant of Cole. It's telling that Geoffrey placed both Ambrosius and Maximus in Arthur's family tree, especially since one of these figures may have possibly been the real-life Arthur. Since Maximus had appeared in Gildas's writing, it's likely that Geoffrey was aware of his historical rendering. Regardless, Geoffrey employed a subtle name change, referring to Maximus as Maximianus. Geoffrey could have been attempting to cover his tracks by slightly altering the historical names of the people Arthur could have been based on. Historian Miles Russell claimed that Magnus Maximus' historical life could account for roughly 39% of Arthur's legend as told by Geoffrey. Historian Dane Pestano suggests a different theory, one that doesn't rely directly on Geoffrey of Monmouth's writing. Pestano points to a Welsh legend, a grandiose figure named Mac Erca. According to Pestano, Mac Erca was the first Christian king of Ireland. His rule began in approximately 510 AD and ended around 537 AD. 537 AD has commonly been given as the final year of Arthur's life, as recorded by the Annals of Wales in the 10th century. Is this overlap a product of mere coincidence? Pestano further urges that Mac Erca's full name in Welsh could be translated to mean Arthur in English. In addition, Erca had a wife whose name closely resembles Guinevere in the original Welsh. Mac Erica was also thought to have relied on a trusted advisor, a mysterious druid figure who may have been an early version of the wizard Merlin. In compiling his life, Pestano chronicles Mac Erica's rise from a ruthless commander to an historic ruler who would eventually claim sovereignty over Britain, Scotland, the Saxons, Denmark, and the Orkney in the same time period as Arthur. Mac Erica also raised a son named Constantine. According to the legend, Sir Constantine inherited the British throne after Arthur's death. Pestano asserts that the parallels to Arthur's legend are unavoidable, begging the question, was Mac Erca the real King Arthur? Which brings us to one final last-ditch theory. In the earliest account of Arthur, the Igadadan, he was compared to a warrior that slew 300 men in battle. This was confirmed by Nineas, 
also writing in the 9th century, when he labeled Arthur as a dux bellorum, or military commander. Historian Dr. Andrew Breeze agrees that the historical Arthur was actually a war general who had fought all his battles in southern Scotland and Northumberland. In Aeneas's writing, he famously provided a list of 12 battles in which Arthur had fought and reigned victorious. Seeking to confirm Aeneas's account, Dr. Breeze sought to find the real-life locations for all 12 of these battles. He concluded that the real locations for these battles could be seen all along the Scottish border. In addition, the name Arthur could be rooted in the Roman name Artorius. Operating under the similar title, Dux Legionum, or Legion Commander, Lucius Artorius Castus was a renowned Roman soldier early in the 3rd century. Artorius led a number of successful military campaigns in Britain in which he had been reportedly wearing a pennant of a large red dragon. Historians suspect the pennant could have been the origin of the Pendragon family name, with Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon, specifically in mind. The name Arturius also shares a root with the Celtic word for bear. It's possible Arturius could have been a nickname earned over time to describe a leader with bear-like qualities. In certain Welsh traditions, the bear was considered the king of all animals. Did this moniker build over time, possibly an oral tradition, to bestow Arthur with a king-like status? The 1998 discovery of the Arthur Stone at Tintagel Castle cast all these possibilities in a new light. The artifact provided crucial archaeological evidence in the debate over Arthur's existence. Regardless of whether Arthur was a commander or a king, the discovery places a historically significant Arthur at Tintagel Castle in the 6th century. For all of Geoffrey of Monmouth's potential faults, he did claim that Arthur was conceived at the same Tintagel Castle. After weighing all the evidence, it seems most likely that the legendary King Arthur was based on the historical King Ambrosius, borrowing heavily from the Roman Emperor Maximus. He likely also loaned qualities from the Welsh ruler Mac Erca. The real person was probably a military commander by the name Arthur or Artorius. Geoffrey of Monmouth may indeed have based his history on an ancient book, or several for that matter. Yet Geoffrey's true fabrication was that he based his tale of King Arthur on one man alone. Regardless of whether you believe the legend, Britain's once and future king achieved mythic immortality. And while scholars continue to debate his origin, his name evokes a sense of belonging and tradition that feels as real as Britain itself. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, 
sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Stephen Lamb and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 